bow our heads and humble our hearts, Father. Grateful that you are a holy God. Therefore, we know you do not make mistakes. You are perfect in all your ways. Grateful that you are a sovereign God. and Therefore, you rule over all of the circumstances of our lives. Grateful that you are a God who seeks sinners. And therefore, we can commune with you and we can enter into your grace through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this, father, this morning, Father, we are so thankful to have our Bibles to explain to us what it means to have a relationship with you. So give us ears to hear, give us tender hearts, give us humble hearts that we would be willing to face the truth about ourselves and about you. We commit our time to you now. Visit us, encourage us, and strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was a little boy back in the 60s, we used to play a game that I don't think they play too much anymore because it has become quite politically incorrect and probably rightly so. But we used to play cowboys and Indians. Maybe some of you did that. And when you play cowboys and Indians, the cowboys are the good guys, right? And the Indians are the, the bad guys, right? Well, being as it was the mid-60s, and depending on whose guns we were playing with, whether they were cowboy guns or whether they were army guns, at my house, we weren't allowed to have toy guns. We could shoot animals, but we couldn't shoot people at my house. And I don't know the the dichotomy in the mind of my mother, but we were allowed to go to Johnny and Tommy Simon's house and play with their guns, but we weren't allowed to have guns. So anyway, we'll worry about that one later. But if we had the army guns, then we would play army, right? And back then, we would play the Americans against the Germans. And the Americans were the good guys, and the Germans were the bad guys. And I don't know, I never entered my mind that... uh, My grandmother was full German, my father's mother, and had just come over a few decades before that, and I had an awful lot of German blood flowing in my veins. But I was an American, no one ever wanted to be the Germans, right? We wiped them out. Almost all stories in the storyline, it works in our brain, doesn't it? When there's a good guy and there's a bad guy. And don't we like it when the good guy wins, right? I mean, the Joker never gets Batman, right? Batman gets the Joker no matter how close he comes to whatever happening. And how about the, the Jedi versus, versus the, the Sith, right? The Jedi have to win, don't they? You don't want to see the end of the movie and, and the Sith wipe out the Jedi. And whoever heard of Lex Luthor whipping up on Superman at the end, right? We love those stories, don't we? Bad guy versus good guy and good guy wins, right? And in the old Roy Roger flicks, man, he had a, what color was his hat? White. The guys with the white hats beat the guys with the black hats. Well, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 4 this morning, and we have a good guy versus bad guy story, but I have news for you. It doesn't turn out the way we would like it to. In this story, the bad guy is going to beat up on the good guy. And this morning we have a very serious topic once again as we move through Genesis. And here in Genesis chapter 4 in this really relatively familiar story of Cain and Abel, 
I want to challenge you to think clearly and honestly about yourselves. What we're doing here this morning is we're looking, really, at the description of a godless man. The Bible clearly tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, that Abel was a righteous man and that it was by faith that his offering was accepted of God. Jesus himself in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel referenced Abel as one of the prophets of old. He was a righteous man. What was Cain? Cain was a demonstration of the product of the fall. You see, we've just finished chapter 3. That's why we're in chapter 4. We do things sequentially and logically around here. And in chapter 3, didn't we have that just most notable event of events? But it didn't seem too bad, did it? I mean, what is the big deal? In the garden, two trees in the middle, don't eat from this tree. Yada, yada, yada. I eat a little fruit from the tree. Who cares? Well, we spent three or four messages there talking about the weight of that decision. But why does it matter? Because in chapter 3, what do we have? We have man, Adam and Eve, capitulating, yielding, obeying Satan and dissing God, right? You see, it wasn't that the fruit was such a huge deal. It was who is going to be the authority in my life? Who is it that I'm going to bow down to? And if God says do this, and I say, nah, I don't think so. I'm going to do it my way. And Satan's whispering, ultimately, the significance of the events of chapter 3 have everything to do with who's going to rule. And they gave in to Satan's way, didn't they? Well, the Bible goes on to clearly teach us, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2, right? And in Romans, clearly, as in Adam all die, in Ephesians chapter 2, we are now dead in trespasses and sins. And the depraved, dark, sinful nature of Adam is passed on to all of us. You know, he was, in many ways, wasn't he? A representative. We can't be critical of Adam and Eve because we would have done just exactly what they did. In a sense, we were there. All humans, now, from then on, born guilty into sin. It doesn't take very long for sin to manifest itself. It comes in and it destroys, explodes or implodes, however you want to view it, the first family. And so this morning, I want us to read our text in Genesis chapter 4. I want us to have an honest look at the reality of sin in my own life. I want you to ask yourself, what is the condition of your heart today? Has the blood of Christ cleansed you from all sin? Are you walking in the way of Abel and are you a righteous man or woman? Are you in, as Jude verse 11 says, the way of Cain? 1 John chapter 3 verse 11 and 12 clearly tell us that Cain killed his brother Abel because he was evil. We have a clear demonstration of two boys in the same family and one obeyed God One went his own way. And like in the words of old Blue Eyes and Elvis and everybody else who's done the song ever since, right? Looking back on my life, when it's all over, one thing I'm going to say is, I did it my way. And that's the world we live in, isn't it? I do it my way. Don't tell me how to live. God, don't come encroach on my space. 
I will do it my way. And we're going to see that that leads to an awful rough life. And Cain in his brokenness still maintains hardness of heart and pride and refuses to stop doing things his way. Let's read the text. It's a pretty interesting story. We'll read 1 through 16 of Genesis chapter 4. So Adam lay with his, life, his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you, and you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. What an incredible story. What I want us to do this morning as we break down this passage is I simply want us to list or click off the characteristics, the qualities that come forth in Cain as the description of a godless or the description of a depraved man. It's not a pretty sight, is it, when sin rules and dominates We jump right into the story in chapter 4 and we see here that Adam and Eve, of course, we know from chapter 3 that they've been expelled from the garden. And now for the very first time in human history, the man comes together with his wife and she becomes pregnant with a child. Eve recognizes that this is a marvelous event and I think that's why she says for two different reasons at least, It says she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. The Lord is in it, isn't he? When we have children, you ever hold a baby and say, wow, what a mystery. How great this is. Look what God has done. And yet there's a human part to it, of course. I wonder, too, in chapter 3, when the curse was given, do you remember? Eve was the one who gave birth to sin. And so God judged her and condemned 
childbirth from then on to be painful, to be difficult, to be a reminder that if you are the one responsible for giving birth to sin from then on, every time you give birth to a child, it's going to be in pain. And I wonder if in the agony of the childbirth, she thought she would die. It's the first time it was ever experienced. Nobody knew what it would be like, right? And there she was in all of the agony of childbirth. She thought at the end, this is from the Lord, but the Lord saved my life even. And with the help of the Lord, I've made it through. And now she had a boy, Cain. Some people think that she had twins and that Cain and Abel were twins. There's no way exegetically we can prove that. She says, then later, verse 2, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And then we have a little description of the two boys. It says that Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. Now let me ask you a question. Is there any, anything wrong with being a shepherd of sheep? Is there anything wrong with being a farmer and growing crops? So one of the things I think we have to establish up front is that Abel did not necessarily have a superior livelihood to Cain. They both had very legitimate livelihoods. Now I want you to see, as we begin to have Cain described, we see the first of our qualities of Cain. In verse 3 it says, And in the course of time Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Characteristic number one of Cain that we see, even as a godless man, was number one, that he was a religious man. Cain was a religious man. You know what religion is, don't you? Religion is when I do something to get to God. And that's what Cain did. Cain somehow acknowledged that God was real. He knew either from his, obviously from his parents teaching him, but later in this text, we're also going to see that God has not cut off his voice from them and that he still communicates to them because he comes and he personally speaks with Cain. And I would guess, even though we don't have it in clearly exegetically for proof in the passage, but these men are evidently now adults or grown-up boys. They're able to work and produce. And there's no reason to think that this isn't something that had happened on more than one occasion. But Cain is obviously a religious man, and he brings some of his produce as an offering to the Lord. But I want you to see one word in here that gives us a clue about things. Look what it says. In the course of time, verse 3, Cain brought some of the fruits. That's all it does to describe. Some, he just brought some of his stuff. Is kind of how I take that. Look what it says about Abel, verse 4. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flocks. I would suggest that not only was Cain a religious man, that is, that he wanted to seek after God, and he believed that somehow God would be pleased with his little offering. We do that all the time, don't we? And we see the evidence of around us. And I was thinking like of the little old country church that we go to for family reunion, and it was an old white clapboard building for many years, and then somebody got an inheritance from their great-grandma or something, and they wanted to brick the church. Now, what a wonderful thing to brick the church and preserve it. And then they put a little plaque down on the corner of the building, brick by so-and-so, such-and-such a date. You know, one of the problems with a religious person is they'll look at that, and they'll say, somehow in the corner of their heart, they believe that somehow they got some kudos from God for bricking the church. And that, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> still fighting a head cold. They'll, they believe that somehow when they get to heaven, God's going to say like, there's the guy that bricked the church. He's my bud, you know, like God needed help bricking the church. 
And we put money in the offering plate. We do that. It's an old thing. Remember the, remember the story in the New Testament where Jesus pointed out to his disciples as they looked across the temple court that the Pharisee who was getting ready to give his offering, that he blew his trumpet. Now, I don't know if he literally did. They literally probably, they had some kind of a ritual where when it was time for them to give their offerings, they at least cleared their throat really loud. <coughs> I'm getting my wallet <coughs> out right <coughs> now. So that everybody will turn their head. They toot their trumpets and Jesus condemned them, right? They were religious people. They were trying to give something to impress God or to reach God. Now, we also have a contrast in the offerings here as we continue to think about this. And it says, it says, interestingly enough, but Abel brought fat portions, verse 4, from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, verse 5, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Well, what's the difference? Some commentators and some students of the word will say this. They'll say, that's because... Apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, right? It is only through the shedding of blood that forgiveness of sin can take place. And ultimately, Jesus became our ultimate sacrificial lamb, shedding his blood for our sin. And so what the, your mind goes to is, you know what? Cain just didn't want to fork over the money or the trade goods. You know, I'll, I'll give you a sack of potatoes, some rutabagas, some onions, and some, some heads of lettuce for one of your lambs. And he didn't want to do that. He just grabbed a handful of rutabagas or something and went and gave it as an offering instead of going through the procedure that evidently God had explained to them that you've got to kill a lamb. But I'm not so sure that's the deal here. Is this before the Mosaic Law or this after the Mosaic Law? It's before, isn't it? This is just the first family. Evidently, there's only four people on earth. Now, it's possible that by this time, more children have been born, but I tend to believe not, probably. But I don't know. We'll talk about that next week. And we'll even talk next week about where did Cain get his wife? Everybody always wants to know that. But I think what's going on here has to do with the attitude of the heart. You see, there was a very legitimate offering, even in Levitical law, of the grain offering. I think this is, this is really the beginnings of, of a first fruits offering. I can't prove it. But don't we do this all the time? And throughout Scripture even in Proverbs and in Leviticus and in other passages, we're told to give of the first fruits of our increase unto the Lord. Well, why do we do that? Because the Lord needs some fat from a lamb? The Lord needs some, some sweet corn that Cain brought and gave to him? The Lord doesn't eat. The Lord doesn't care. No, let's go back to the temple court when Jesus was pointing out the Pharisee. Do you think the you think that God's waiting up in heaven scratching his head worried that maybe some rich guy needs to give more money because he doesn't have enough resource? That's utter nonsense. God doesn't need more money. And that's why when Jesus pointed out the widow lady who had no money and was very poor and she got her mites out and put them in, what was the deal? She had given more than the other guy gave. Why? Because she gave from her poverty and she gave everything she had. But more than that, she gave from a heart that was right with God and that was worshiping God and was acknowledging the fact that, Lord, you own my life. Lord, you've given me everything I have. And, Lord, I give this to you to just acknowledge that you are the Lord of my life and you are in first place in my life. So this is why we've got to be careful when we put $20 bills in the offering plate or any other kind of bill. You think, 
This week it's a $100 bill. The Lord's, really, the Lord's really doing good this week. You don't understand. The Lord can't tell the difference in a way between a $200 bill and a $20 bill and a $100 bill, right? And you heard the old joke about the guy that said, was talking to the Lord, you know. You know how the verse goes, and one day with the Lord is, is, a, is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. And the guy, preacher was preaching away and he, and he was saying, you know, the Lord, a thousand dollars is the same as a lo- with the Lord is a dollar. So the guy started to pray to the Lord, Lord, give me a thousand dollars. And the Lord said, sure, it, tomorrow. He didn't get that, but a thousand more years. Anyway, it's a dumb joke. It wasn't in my notes. I shouldn't have said it, but the Lord doesn't know the difference between many days and few days. I mean, he does, but it doesn't matter to him. He's outside of that. The Lord is outside of money. The Lord is outside of resource. When Cain gave his offering, it wasn't as though the Lord needed some rutabagas that day at all. And so I think it had everything to do with the heart attitude. I don't think it had at this point to do with the shedding of blood near so much as it had to do with their heart attitude. And therefore, I think the second quality we see in Cain is that he was a careless man. He was a careless man. And I think the reason that he was a careless man is that he did not want to give God something that cost him something. Do you remember the story of David? When he wanted to offer a sacrifice, King David of old, when he wanted to offer a sacrifice and he was at Nabal's vineyard there and, and the threshing floor of Nabal and he wanted to give an offering and he didn't have anything to give and he wanted to make a sacrifice before the Lord. And so the guy comes up to him and he says, hey, here's my team of oxen with the wooden yoke and everything. Take the wood, bash it up, start a fire, kill my oxen, and then you can worship. And David said what? David said, no, I will not offer anything that costs me nothing. That's it, isn't it? And here's Cain. He refused to worship. You see, it's just like with uh, 1 Samuel chapter uh, 15, when Saul didn't wipe out the Amalekites. Remember that story? And he had the bleeding of sheep in, in his ears. Samuel said, what meaneth, in King James, what meaneth the bleeding of sheep in mine ears? You were supposed to kill them all, but he didn't. Why? Because he brought them back to use as sacrifices. But why did he do that? So that all of the lambs and the calves back home could be sent off to market so he could put more money in the bank. That's why, because his real God was materialism and money. And God doesn't need more sacrifice. God doesn't need more fat of rams. God needs a broken and a contrite heart, he said in 1 Samuel 15. And it is better to obey than to sacrifice. I think this is all what's going on here between Abel and Cain. One boy is righteous. One boy approaches in faith. One boy approaches in humility. One boy acknowledges God as the ruler of his universe. And the other boy is highly inconvenienced, grabs some of his stuff, throws it down before the Lord and says, there you go, God, aren't I doing good? A religious man, a careless man, but more than that, he's a selfish man. Just like King Saul didn't want to sacrifice his own animals, so he took the forbidden Amalekite animals to, to sacrifice. Turn with me to Malachi in the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 1. If you go to Matthew and turn left, you'll find Matthew. Malachi, excuse me. Go to Matthew, turn to the left, and you'll have Malachi. We're jumping into the middle of a context here, but God is condemning the priests of Israel in this passage 
because they are offering inferior sacrifices. You see, this is under the animal blood sacrifice. This is a type of what Christ would be. Because the Bible does say, with the shedding of blood, there is the remission of sin. And this is the, the picture of the atoning sacrifice of Christ in the form of these animals, but they had become religious rituals. They hadn't, it was no longer a matter of the heart. And notice the strong language. Let's pick it up with verse 6. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. God is talking to them and he says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You placed defiled food on my altar. Okay, stop. Does God need a good steak to eat or does God need some kind of real, good, excuse me, good food? <coughs> some kind of real good food? No. It has to do with the giver and the attitude of the heart. And so look what he says. But you ask, how have we defiled you? God said, you placed defiled food on my altar, verse 7. By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. Contemptible. When you do what? When you bring blind animals for sacrifice. Is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising of the setting of the sun to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden! And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. That is a powerful passage. And that's exactly what Cain did. Abel went with fear before the great king of the universe, and Cain said, ah, I got some radishes here, I got some stalks, let me just take those. He's a selfish man because he doesn't want to give of his best to the Lord. He wants to keep the best for himself. And as God said to the priests in Malachi, why don't you try doing that to your governors and see what they do? You wouldn't do that, but you do it to me, the great king of the universe. I'll tell you, it's a wake-up call for the church, isn't it? It's a good thing we're under grace, my friend. And how we cut the corners, don't we? And how we give Lord, the Lord the leftovers. And how we sing our praise to him and we talk about what a great God he is and shout to the Lord and he's hardly on our minds. And that's Cain, living his life my way. I'll do it my way. And God says, 
You might be religious, but that didn't get in it. And he was careless and he was selfish. And let's go back to Genesis 4. And I want you to see now in verse 5 that he's an angry man. He's an angry man. Look at this. Verse 5, Genesis chapter 4. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and downcast. His face was downcast. On his face, he was contorted. He was angry. Who and what was Cain angry about and towards? He was angry with God, wasn't he? Whose fault was it? It was his fault. Did God do anything to him except bless him? No. But he's angry. I think he's going to spill that anger. And isn't it funny how illogical sin is? He's angry at God, so he goes and kills his brother. Go figure. That doesn't make any sense. And why was he so angry? Well, we see that in verse 5 at the end. He's, he's pouting. He's feeling sorry for himself. And then into verse 6, notice how God approaches him. Then in verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Look, even at this point, you see the grace of God, don't you? You see a God who makes repeated efforts to come towards the sinner. Cain, you know as well as I know that those weeds that you just put down on the altar is not your best and you did it out of ritual, you did it out of convenience, you did it out of doing things your way and not my way, and now I want to remind you to back up, start over again, examine your heart, and come back to me. Have you ever been there with the Lord? Aren't you thankful? I mean, he could have struck him with lightning, right? But he says, no, if you do what is right... But he is so proud and arrogant, he maintains his anger, and in his pride, he refuses to yield his heart over to God, even here. Isn't that amazing? And isn't that the way we are? You know you're going down a dead-end street. You know you're going from bad to worse. You know that sin is eating you for lunch. It might have even rotted your teeth out by now, and you still do what you do, beating your head against the wall, and God says, come to me. Come to me. I'll forgive you. Come on, let me start you over. And you say, no, I do it my way. Fine. You ever notice how God doesn't force his hand? I think it's interesting here too, and gracious of the Lord, and worth observing that when God confronts Cain and says, if you would just do what is right, won't you be accepted? He doesn't do what some of us as parents would do. God doesn't go, Cain, if you would just be like Abel, you, I would accept you. Why can't you be like your brother? See him? Then you think he would want to kill his brother. But God does what? God holds the standard up for his living and his standard of worship Righteousness, Cain, just do what is right. Just do what's right. Boy, some of us can relate, can't we? And in my, in my selfishness, in my carelessness, and in my anger, and in my pride, I do not want to bend my heart before the Lord. 
And then God goes on to warn him. Middle of verse 7, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Well, that reminds you of 1 Peter 5, 8, doesn't it? That Satan himself is doing what? He's going about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. What a word picture. Crouching at your door is the personification of sin, and you think you can handle it, and Cain thinks he can handle it, because, number six, he's a stubborn man. God warns him, God gives him a chance to repent, and he refuses because he thinks he can handle sin. He thinks he's got it together. And at this point, I'm thinking in Cain's mind, he'd almost rather die in sin than have to admit that God was right. That, my friend, is the picture of a depraved heart and mind. That's what sin will do to you. I think that number seven, that means that he was a foolish man. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 13 says, He who scorns instruction will pay for it. It's a continual description of a fool and a mocker in Proverbs, isn't it? And one of the things that is repeated over and over and over is, listen to the counsel of your mom, listen to the wisdom of your father, surrender to the will of God, and if you don't and you harden your heart, you're a fool. Cain's a fool. Cain was a religious man. Cain was a careless man. Cain was a selfish man. He was an angry man. He was a proud man. He was a stubborn man. He was a foolish man. Let's read on the rest of the story. Verse 8, now Cain says to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Number 8, he's a deceitful man. You ever notice somebody who's determinedly committed to their sinful lifestyle is almost always a liar and a deceiver? Rich and I were dealing with a guy in the parking lot not long ago. People stop by here and ask for help, and we get people who are deep in their sin and, and their addictions, and it's very evident and obvious. We talked to him for a while, and in this case, we, we dumped a few gallons of gas in his truck. We shared the gospel with him. It was obvious the guy is far into his sin, and that sin has had a hold on him for many years. He's 50 years old, and he looked 100 I was talking to Rich afterwards and I said, I said, crackheads, alcoholics, meth and heroin, anytime you deal with them, they're the biggest liars in the world. They lie all the time. And I said, there's only one other group of people that are committed to lying and it's a guy that you're dealing with who's having an affair on his wife. He lies just like a heroin addict. That's what sin will do to you. And there's Cain Somehow he's got to release the stress that's within from the guilt and the conviction and the knowing, knowing the pride and the arrogance and he's ready to explode and so he's ready to lash out and it's darkness versus light. It's unrighteousness going to attack righteousness and it happens all the time, doesn't it? Brother, let's go out in the field. Let me show you my crops. And we don't know from the story, we don't have the details. Did he have... Abel's own killing knife that Abel had just shortly before that sacrificed and cut off fat from the lamb before the Lord and did he cut his brother's throat with that? 
Did he have his cornhoe with him and he just walloped him upside the head and bashed his brains in with that? Did he take a rock and smash him down? Did he just grab him and wrestle him down and choke the life out of him with his thumbs on his throat while his eyes bulged and the life went from his brother? What a horrible situation. And Cain says, I'd never do anything like that just an hour before, but sin will take you places you never dreamed you'd go. And he's an angry man, and he's a proud man, and he's a stubborn man, and he's a foolish man, and he's a deceitful man, and he's a brutal man, number nine. And now notice what God says to him in verse nine. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? Does that remind you of a picture in chapter three? Adam, Adam, where are you? Like God's like scratching his head, like I've lost track of somebody? No, he wants to put him on the spot and he wants him to hear his own voice speak lies to bring the conviction of guilt. Guilt's a good thing, isn't it? Broken heart and a contrite spirit, that's a good thing. David says, my bones wax old within me. I can't even sleep on my bed anymore. I toss and I turn. I'm losing weight. I have no appetite for food. Why, David? Because I slept with my neighbor's wife. I lied about it. And then I murdered him so that I could have her. And the guilt piled up and the guilt piled up. And remember, Nathan the prophet goes up to David and he tells him a story. King David, let me tell you a story. There is a man who is rich and he's a sheep farmer. And he had many, many, many sheep. And he had a next door neighbor and they were poor people and the children had a little pet lamb. And one day the rich man wanted to make a sacrifice and so he said, I know what I'll do. I'll not sacrifice my sheep. And he went over and he jerks the little lamb away from the crying children's grasp and takes it and kills it and sacrifices and David becomes livid. Find that man and I'll beat him to a pulp. And Nathan reaches out and thumps him on the chest and says, that man is you. And David breaks. Cain refused to break under conviction. And what does he do? He lies to God. He's a dishonest man. Verse 9, look what he says. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's my brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? You can almost hear the snotty, snide reply, can't you? Don't bother me, God. And God goes on to say, and the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Hebrews 11 says that it still speaks to us, just like it is this morning, right? Now you are under a curse. Number 11, he's a guilty man. Number 12, he's a cursed man. God points out, you're guilty. Number 11, he says, you're cursed. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you and you will be a restless wanderer on all the earth. And look at old poor Cain in verse 13. And Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. He's a cursed man. Interesting, in chapter three, God curses the snake and in chapter four, he curses the third man ever born, ever lived. What's going on in Cain's mind? I'll tell you, it's just more self-pity, isn't it? It's the reason he was angry before is because he was pouting and felt sorry for himself. And now God says, the ground is cursed. He was a farmer. He made his living from the ground. And I would say this was an additional curse than from the curse in chapter 3 where the ground was cursed. 
And, and Cain says, I can't bear up under it. The ground is my life. And Cain said to the Lord, verse 13, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. What's going on in his mind? I don't know for sure. It could be that he'd gotten where he was really attached to his farm there, outside of Eden somewhere. And he'd really developed the place. I worked on a dairy farm when I was in high school. I loved it. I wanted to become a dairy farmer. I tried to do all kinds of things except be a preacher, and the Lord never let me. But I thought farming was great. I loved it, and I worked hard. And I remember when I quit, I bawled. When I turned in notice, part of it was because I loved that farm, and I loved that ground, and I loved that work. Maybe that's what Cain's feeling. Hey, I love it here, and now you're telling me i got to leave home and wander around. I love this. I don't know. And he was cursed to be a restless wanderer. That's really what Nod means. It wasn't so much that Nod, the word Nod, the city of Nod, it's like wanderer. So it must be like he didn't have a permanent city from then on. It also says that when he worked the ground, let's read a little bit more. Today, verse 14, you are driving from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land east of Eden. The Lord cursed the ground. Here it is, what I was looking for. Verse 12, when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And I take it it could be a couple ways. Was it that Cain, every time he put seed in the ground from then on, grew bad crops? Or because of this wandering and because of people, his fear and this guilt that he carried the rest of his life, trying to stay away from people, every time he planted a garden, he was never there long enough to harvest it. And off he went. And he never got his own produce of his labor. And he was afraid, and God made him, number 13, a marked man. He was a marked man. We don't know what kind of mark he had, whether it was some kind of a, a birthmark that because of his anger from then on, showed bright red on the side of his face? Um, Was it a physical characteristic? Was it just something? And you've been around people like that, and you say to that person, you say to your wife or someone, when they leave, you say, something about that guy, I just don't know about him, I don't trust him. I don't know what kind of mark Cain had from then on. In no way do I believe this is any kind of a racial reference, and that there's any kind of minority group of people today that are the sons of Cain and they have a certain skin color because God judged them and condemned them. Don't even think like that. I think that's nonsense. But from then on, everywhere he went, everybody pointed at him and whispered, there's Cain, there's Cain, there's Cain. But I want you to see God's response. Cain says, I can't bear up under this. He's still just feeling sorry for us. Do you think at this point that if he would have confessed and forsaken and repented his sin of killing his brother Abel that God would have forgiven him? Absolutely. And I don't think that's what he's feeling bad about. He's feeling bad about his suffering. He's not feeling bad about killing his brother. He's feeling bad. He's got to leave the farm and he's going to wander and he's going to have to grow weeds from then on. Poor me. How come this happened to me? What did you think was going to happen, Cain? What were you thinking about? I was talking to somebody the other day and we were talking about sin and the steps that people take. And I said, you know, one thing you got to remember, one thing you have to remember is that people who are down the road of sin, that sin is not logical after a while. 
And we're always trying to figure out why somebody's doing it because of logic. Why would you do that? Why would you huff a bag full of spray paint? I don't know. Stupid. Ruins your brain cells. It's not logical. And it's that way all across the board with sin. It gets to a point where it's not logical. You just do it. But God, in his mercy, says to Cain, no, people will not kill you. In fact, I'm going to put a seven-fold curse on somebody if they do touch you, and they're not going to touch you, and he marked him. That's a picture of God's grace, isn't it? My friend, apart from Christ, that's us, isn't it? Think about it. We might be a religious person, trying to reach God on my terms. I'm going to do it my way, God. Do you find that you're a careless person, a selfish man like Cain, an angry man, a proud man, a stubborn man, a foolish man, a deceitful man, a brutal man, a dishonest man, a guilty man, a cursed man, a marked man? Listen. The only way to get rid of the mark of sin on our lives is the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Cain lived in misery because he did it his way. What are you going to do? Are you going to live your life and say, there's God? Tell it to the hand, man. The ear doesn't want to hear it. I'm going to do it my way. Go ahead. Go ahead. And sin is crouching at your door and it will devour you if you don't master it. How do we master sin? There's only one way. Jesus Christ himself conquered death, hell, sin in the grave. He shed his blood on that cross so that by grace through faith I could accept that free gift of salvation and enter in, become a new creation in Christ. Praise God. Apart from his grace, what would I be? I would be king. You say, but I'm pretty bad. I've done a lot of bad things. I wrecked some homes. I wrecked some cars. I wrecked some faces. I've done a lot of bad things. God says, come to me just as you are. He would have taken Cain just as he is. I wonder if today is not the day of salvation for some of you. Accept the free gift of God's salvation. It's as easy as ABC, we say around here. Admit your sin. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Will you bow your head with me, please? Interesting, isn't it, that our, even the most righteous deeds we do are as filthy rags, and there's nothing we can do about our own sin but praise God, he continually pursues us, even the, as he did Cain. He continued to come to him and offer grace and mercy to him, but Cain refused to yield. Today, will you yield your life to him? You might think you have the world by the tail, and your favorite song might be Cain's favorite song, I did it my way. But my friend, the wages of sin is always death. And it might be death in really slow motion right now, but I guarantee it's going to start picking up pace. And one of these days, could be before you know it, going to look at you and say, you got a brain tumor, my friend, or you're going to get hit head on in a wreck. You're going to be before the throne of Almighty God. You're going to be downcast and angry with him. Are you going to lay down and say, only the righteousness of Christ gets me in?
right now this morning? Do you have a sinful heart? Are you willing to confess your sin before the Lord and ask him to forgive you and acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and that that free gift of salvation is yours by faith? Hebrews 11.4, that's what Abel had. By faith, Abel offered a better offering. Not in his own strength, but just by faith, believing that God says and means what he does and what he is. Today, I, I implore you, I beg of you to make sure you're saved and know Jesus Christ as your Savior. <coughs> Others of us, we need, to, we need to get God's stick and the sword of the word and beat back sin that's been crouching at our door ready to devour us. And before it conquers us, we need to resubmit ourselves to Christ, don't we? Father, thank you for your great grace. Thank you for the gift of your salvation through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you that you take us just as we are today. I pray that you would accomplish your purposes in our heart through the word here. In Jesus' name.